Hello and welcome to the world in 30-ish minutes, as we're now going to call it, which is the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joined today for a podcast on the resurgence of ISIS after the recent capture of Ramadi and Palmyra by two ECFR experts. First up is Julian Barnes-Dacey, who's a senior policy fellow from our Middle East and North Africa program. Julian has worked as a journalist uh, for many years, uh, including uh, serving in Syria before joining ECFR, where he works right across the, the regional issues, but it's particularly focused on the Levant on Iraq and Syria, which form the, the heart of uh, ISIS's activities. And secondly, I have Ellie Garanmayer, who is a policy fellow at ECFR, and she is uh, the leading light on Iran, uh, who's been working not just on the nuclear issue, but on Iran's involvement across the whole regional um, uh, mess that uh, we're going to be <laughs> describing over the next half hour. So ISIS, uh, or the Islamic State, or Daesh, has been in the news a lot over the last year. It burst into the public consciousness in the summer of 2014, when over the course of 100 days, it seemed to transform the entire politics of the Middle East, shattering a Western-led order that had been established after the Iraq War, and taking over city after city, it really captured the popular imagination when a mere 1,300 ISIS fighters managed to overrun the nominal Iraqi army of 60,000 to capture the city of, of Mosul. And at that time, the Islamic State's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, signaled the end of the Westphalian order with his declaration that Syria is not for the Syrians and Iraq is not for the Iraqis. The earth is Allah's. So... In the last few months, it looked like the group was losing some ground. It was being pushed back by Western interventions. Regional powers like Iran were also stepping up their game. But in the, in the past week or so, we've seen ISIS capture the Syrian city of Palmyra. We've seen them uh, take over uh, Ramadi in Iraq. And there is yet again uh, a sense of panic in many Western capitals about the seemingly inexorable spread of the Islamic State. So what we're going to try and do today is look both at what's happening on the ground and explore the role of the, the regional powers uh, in the fight against ISIS. And secondly, we're going to look at, at what it means for the role of the West, where the US is going, and also how Europe fits into this bigger picture. So Julian, do you want to start by giving us a sense of, of how you see the situation um, on the ground at the moment in, in Iraq and Syria? Well, I think the the recent seizures of, of Ramadi in, in in Iraq and Palmyra and Syria have really been a reality check on the, on the anti-ISIS campaign. There was a sense that things were moving in the right direction. You had the big campaigns in Kobane and in Tikrit in which ISIS was defeated. And there was a lot of rhetoric coming out of uh, Western governments and the U.S. in particular that this was moving in the right direction. And clearly with the, these reversals and the fact that ISIS has actually claimed new territory, um a sense of, of new perspective has set in and, and, and a realisation that perhaps should have always been there that this is going to be a long battle, that there is no easy solution. And frankly, the, 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 the strategy being pursued at the moment has serious holes to it. And I think there are, there are a number of those that need to be 
looked at, but but just to, to outline them very quickly, there, there's a fact that... Um, Jude, maybe before you go into the holes, you could just try and help us disentangle a bit what everyone's doing, because there's so many different players involved in this. I mean, what are the Saudis doing? What are the Iranians doing? What are the US doing? Well, the, I mean, the, the anti-ISIS campaign is effectively being, being driven most, first and foremost in Iraq. And there you have a US-led coalition, which includes the Gulf countries, which includes um, a number of European countries, leading an air campaign against ISIS. You have training of the Iraq Iraqi armed forces on the ground. Um, but in combination with that, you have uh, the Iraqi government uh, forces and you have Iranian-led, or I should say Iranian-backed Iraqi militias, um, which are actually the front line. These are the ground troops which are pushing back, which are leading the fight against ISIS in Iraq. In Syria, you don't have that. In Syria, you have a limited air campaign um, in the vicinity of Kurdish areas, but you don't have forces on the ground pushing back against ISIS. You have a Syrian army which is pulling back, focusing on, on, on fighting uh, non-ISIS elements of the opposition. And you have non-ISIS elements of the opposition more focused on continuing the fight against Assad than ISIS. So effectively, ISIS has a lot of space to maneuver and operate in Syria, whereas in Iraq, it is coming face to face with a multi-pronged, multi-dimensional kind of campaign against it, which is including this coalition, but also has a strong Iranian-backed element to it. And how serious is that multinational force? I mean, Ash Carter, the US Defense Secretary, recently <coughs> criticized the, the commitment of the Iraqi army, saying that they had no will to fight. Um, is it, and that was obviously the, the experience last year when uh, Mosul fell, was you, even though there were 40 times as many uh, Iraqi army troops as ISIS troops, they seem to be uh, spending most of their time running away, changing out of their military uniforms into civilian gear in order to to uh, avoid fighting. Is that something which has changed much? No, and that, uh, that's in a sense getting to the, to the holes in the campaign which I was going to talk about, in the sense that you don't have sufficient, well-trained, equipped ground troops able to take the fight to ISIS. The Iraqi army isn't up to it. Airstrikes aren't able to do it alone. And what you're effectively relying on are Shia-led militias who are the only groups who are actually able to, to demonstrate a, a, a willingness and ability to fight against ISIS, but at the same time are covering themselves in part in a sectarian language, which is pushing back and alienating Sunni, Sunnis on the ground and effectively delaying the core dynamics or the, or the fundamental issue which needs to be resolved, which is the political problems in Iraq, which is how do you get Sunnis and Shias to live alongside each other within the political framework of Iraq. And so long as you have Shia-led militias leading this fight, Sunnis on the ground feel that this is... Uh, a sectarian campaign. This is being done at Iran's behest, and so long as Baghdad isn't reaching out to them with sufficient um, with a su sufficient sense of political inclusiveness, um, they don't have much hope. So, so these are the the fundamental problems. There's not much that can be done in the short term. I mean, these are the only people that can fight them. There's no there's no way around that. And yet, how do you how do you weave together the kind of the military dimensions and military necessity of relying on these militias? in combination with, with the, the necessity of a political uh, reformatting of Baghdad, of, of Iraq, which somehow needs to draw the two together. So, Ellie, um, we heard a lot from Julian about these Iran-backed Shiite troops. Do you want to tell us what they're up to? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, um, 
First of all, the uh, the involvement of Iran in, in Iraq is uh, deeply rooted in you know the Iran-Iraq war that stretched back to the 80s. They know the plateau of Iraq pretty well. They have uh, the Iranians have very strong ties uh, after the fall of uh, Saddam Hussein and even pre- predating that with the Shia-dominated uh, Najaf area um, alongside the the northern Kurdish zones. So for a very long time, they've kept links uh, throughout Iraq with different factions and different sects, which essentially drew, drew upon Iran's help um, after the surge in Daesh last year. Um, there was a call by uh, the the highest authority, religious authority, uh, for the Shias in Najaf uh, last summer after the fall of uh, Mosul, essentially calling uh, for um, Iraqis, both Shias and Sunni, but obviously his authority goes to to, to the Shias uh, majority in in Iraq to take up arms uh, to push back against Daesh, and. Iranians were uh, were essentially the first people on the ground um, once Baghdad made that uh, um, call out for help from the international community uh, for a number of reasons because it, the, the safety and the security of Iraq is a direct national security interest for the Iranians. They share uh, a very long and porous border with Iraq um, and the stability of its neighbors is very important to it. And so Iran was first on the scene, and this has repeatedly been stated by the central government in Iraq, the Kurds and, and the Shias. Um, and Iran also itself has a long history of mobilizing, uh, particularly Shia groups. Uh, they've had a, a history themselves after their own army disintegrated in the Iran-Iraq war to create a paramilitary force, essentially with the Quds Force, with the uh, um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And also uh, with the formation of Hezbollah in Lebanon, they've had a lot of uh, training and insight into creating and mobilizing these forces. So once Sistani made this call out for the Shias to mobilize, Iran essentially um, helped to formulate that into a coherent um, structure, uh, a military structure that could uh, lead a counteroffensive against um, Daesh uh, or ISIS as we call them. Um, what's been happening since the summer has been uh, what's been described actually by some former Iranian officials to us is. Uh, it, it, in some cases, in a U.S.-led air coalition against ISIS, uh, creating the path on the ground for the Iranian-backed Shia militias to um, seek the offensive against ISIS. So we've seen this very tactical um, coordination between the two forces happening on the ground, which has been funneled through the central uh, Baghdad government. But obviously, having these Iranian boots and these advisors on the ground and these Shia mobilization is... Um, as uh, Julian has pointed out, creates a catch-22, particularly for the West here, because on the one hand, uh, the Iranians have proven themselves to be the only um, able and willing party in the neighborhood uh, to put boots on the ground and to be on the front line. We've had uh, General Soleimani, for better or for worse, being on the front line with uh, with the Iraqi army and with the Iraqi Shia forces uh, pushing back against Daesh. There is really no alternative. The Turks aren't up to it, the Saudis aren't up to it, or aren't willing to uh, put boots on the ground. At the same time, there's a real sense that having uh, Iran's involvement 
and at such a visible level is really fueling this Sunni uptake uh, towards Daesh. Um, and for example, uh, as we've said in Ramadi, with the disintegration of armies and, uh, and essentially a lot of the Sunni members of the Central Army putting down their arms and leaving Ramadi, uh, this is slightly being this is being seen as being fueled by the Iranian involvement in the region. So it's a catch twenty two. The more successful Iran is militarily, the more likely. Uh, Sunnis are to get radicalised and to, to join ISIS and other sorts of groups. So even if we defeat ISIS, something looking it's quite similar to it will appear in its place. Essentially, there's still a vacuum for a political solution, I think, yeah. it, of what we've said of inclusion for the Sunnis. Um, and until that happens in a meaningful way, you're still going to have this spiral of insurgency. You can only, you can only defeat ISIS to a certain extent militarily, but there needs to be a political solution accompanying it. And effectively, Iraq and Syria are broken, and they can't be reconfigured as they were. And until uh, the Iranians play a role in that, as well as the West and the regional actors, in trying to create a new political environment of inclusivity that, that actually allows Sunnis and Shias uh, to live and work together, the military track will only go so far. But given that the priority in the West is this, this, this fear of terrorism in Iran, they're trying to push back against al-Qaeda moving against their border, there is clearly this sense that, well, that has to take, take the, the kind of, that has to be the immediate priority. So is the Islamic State going to last? I mean, there, there was an article by, I think, in today's uh, Wall Street, no, the Washington Post today, I think, by the former deputy director of the CIA. Is that right? Yeah. Um, saying that uh, if ISIS, uh, if the Islamic State still exists in two years' time, they'll basically have won and, and they'll be there forever. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think? And he, one of, he had a number of different things which he was saying were, were kind of critical. One of them is whether they get to Baghdad or not. They're quite close now because Ramadi's less than 100 kilometers from, or just over 100 kilometers from Baghdad. And, uh, but, you know, what's your sense on, of that? Well, I, I mean, I, it's hard to see how they're going to be defeated. Um, it, and particularly within the Syria context, as, as opposed to the Iraq one. I mean, there's this vast um, swathe of territory they control. And there's no one prepared to put the necessary boots on the ground to actually take the fight to them. Nor is there a political solution in sight that actually would, would, would demobilize the, the grievances that are, that are feeding them. In Iraq, I don't think there's much chance that they'll actually take Baghdad. Ramadi may only be 100 miles from, from the capital, but, but they're, they're not going to advance that 100 miles. There's no way that that's going to happen. What they could do, though, is, of <coughs> course, infiltrate the city. And they could start a bombing campaign. And they could... Um, create a sense of fear in the capital, which would only, I think, um, or, or, or which would clearly exacerbate the, the, the tensions, the sectarian tensions that are fueling the polarization within Iraq. So that is clearly a worrying um, thing. But but how you how you push back against them in the long term, how you defeat them in places like Mosul and and and. Um, and Raqqa in Syria is a key question, and that requires a political dynamic which just isn't there. And I think just to add to that, the the worry now is that you're seeing pockets of Islamic State affiliates emerging in places like Afghanistan and even in Lebanon of recent 
times which has been been seen as being isolated from this conflict. And I think you can see really ISIS as being the offshoot and as a consequence of Al-Qaeda. And now we have forces like Jabhat al-Nusra gaining ground in, uh, in Syria. So th- I wouldn't be surprised to see one day a gray or you know whatever shade of gray or whatever shade of black flags going up in these cities until there is a political track in place that reflects the needs of these societies as a whole. You'll just see different permutations of Daesh emerging in the future, even if the Islamic State as we know it is defeated by two years' time. But- you know, even before ISIS emerged and the Islamic State was declared, Iraq was not a unitary country. Mm. It kind of pretty much ceased to function as a single kind of political space. And since the civil war has been raging, well, it's more than a civil war, the regional war has been raging through Syria. It seems unlikely that Assad is going to ever regain total control of the country. So, I mean, what is going to come broken. out of this? Completely, it's broken, and, so and you have a, a you have a you have an emerged. area of territory from effectively from Ramadi over to Homs in Syria. You have a, a, a which is not controlled by the central governments of Iraq and Syria, which is mainly Sunni, on which the central governments have turned against. How do you how do you reconfigure that into a political system? Is is a really hard question to answer, and I don't think there is going to be a short term solution. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire state structure is going to break down, but it's hard to imagine any scenario in which there are central states controlling the rule of law and the use of force in those territories. So what does that mean for the West? Because we've seen the American uh, approach providing the air support for Iran's ground campaign uh, you know, had limited effect, as, as you both described uh, effectively. Uh, you know, obviously... Obama is pretty desperate not to get sucked into uh, back into Iraq any more than he, he can because withdrawing from Iraq was one of his big triumphs in 2011, although it maybe looks less triumphant now than, than it did um, a few years ago. Um, what's, uh, what are the options available to, to the US? And then from a European perspective, um, you know, what are our interests in this? Because Traditionally, we've been suckers for supporting um, uh, the status quo on borders, and we're very against uh, changing any borders at all. But these borders don't seem like they uh, are particularly defensible anymore. And so, I mean, what should we, what should we be trying to do beyond saying there's there's no military solution? Which uh, you seem, I'm glad to hear that the two of you have um, have repeated that common European call. I don't know, Julian, why don't you go first? I mean, on, on what the US can do, that there aren't immediate easy answers, clearly. I mean, until, until the local governments get their act together, until the regional players get their act together, it's hard. there is no prospect of boots on the ground, it seems. So the fight is going to be continued to, to have to be led by, by, by local actors, and the US is going to have to lean hard, and it has an ability to do that, to try and press... Um, some of them to get their act together. And it should be said that, I mean, we've talked a lot about Iran, but the other dimension is this, is what are the, the, the Sunni Arab players doing? And it seems that in Syria, the, the, the strategy is to actually empower non-ISIS, but very conservative-leaning opposition militant groups 
as a counterweight towards ISIS. And that, of course, is, is in itself a dangerous um, tactic. And I mean, one of the key elements of that is a new alliance called the, the Army of Conquest, which is a sect, essentially a vehicle for Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda branch. So what we're now seeing is a moderate al-Qaeda force being used by some of the regional actors to fight an extremist force. And so clearly that, you know, if the US is going to start pressuring regional actors, it's going to have to... Um, lean on, on all sides and not just the Iranians to, 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 to pull back, particularly, as Ellie says, as they are the ones who are actually putting boots on the ground. The Europeans have very little ability to, 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 to have a say in this. And clearly the threat is significant for them. I mean, as you say, we're so tied to the existing system, but the result of that has been uh, a, a, an influx of Europeans who are joining the fight, a huge um, risk for, for blowback, violence and terrorism in Europe. We have the migration crisis of which a huge number of the refugees are from Syria. I mean, there is a huge need to address these. The Europeans are not like the Americans going to put boots on the ground and they're <coughs> going to try and help contain the fight th through airstrikes. But I think as everywhere, the question is, how can they use their leverage and their influence to push the domestic and the regional actors um, to come to some kind of agreement on this. There are no easy answers for this, and that's why it's such, you know, it's going to be a long-haul fight. The risks are going to increase, and it may be that until until the battle is, has, 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 has fought itself on the ground, until there is a new state structure or sense of kind of um, power balance on the ground, there is going to be no solutions. But I don't know if Ellie has anything more inspiring to... <laughs> Also, Ellie, it'd be interesting to hear from you, you know, in terms of the way that Iranians see yeah. this at the moment. So obviously it's massive strategic opportunity um, being asked by the Americans to go in uh, to neighbouring countries makes quite a change from the politics of the last few years. Is it all good or are people kind of slightly worried that this might get out of control? I'll just uh, come back to you on both of those points. I think one thing, for example, that the Europeans may be able to do in the short term is try and encourage the regional stakeholders that are engaged in both Syria and Iraq to contain the escalation, the worsening of the situation. That's at least one thing that they can, in, in the minimum, in the short run, try and encourage through both their relations with the Iranians and particularly with the Saudis here, and Qataris and the Turks as well are clearly involved in this. Um, in terms of Iran's involvement, I mean, Daesh, the emergence of ISIS has really been a platform of opportunity for Iran to uh, confidently say, you know, we were right from the beginning in terms of backing Assad, otherwise Syria would fall to the hands of the extremist forces. They've used this to um, justify, for example, the involvement, the extensive involvement of Hezbollah forces on the ground in Syria as a pushback against both the radical Islamic factions emerging uh, in Syria and, and ISIS. And when it comes to Iraq, um, you know, there are some that tell me we, we are waiting for Iraq and Baghdad to come back to us on Ramadi and knock on our door and ask us to, co uh, to come in, uh, to their rescue, essentially, because uh, there, there was a tacit understanding that while areas of Tikrit would belong to the Iranians in terms of the counteroffensive against ISIS, Ramadi and Mosul would essentially be um, covered by the U.S. air, um, air, air strikes, uh, which have obviously not gone as to plan. And in response to Ash Carter, the Defense Secretary's um, scathing remarks about the uh, Central Army in Iraq, uh, the Iranian um, Quds Force leader, Ghassan Soleimani, came out on Sunday to essentially say, well, America, 
you haven't done a damn thing and uh, you're not on the ground. We are and we're, we're backing the Baghdad government. So I think this is uh, given Iran an opportunity to really say that they are the only effective partner on the ground. And in some, in, in some circles, I hear voices saying, you know, we're after the Yemen uh, onslaught and uh, with the Saudi-led uh, coalition against the Houthis in Yemen, which hasn't also been as effective as they planned over the last two months. Uh, this has again bolstered Iran's position as the only effective fighting force in the region. But there's, I mean, but there's a critical dynamic then. Ellie raises an important point. I mean, Carter talked about the lack of of Iraqi willpower to to, to take the fight to ISIS. Then there's a real question: Does anyone really have the willpower? Mm to go where ISIS is at its heart. I mean, who is willing to go into places like Mosul and, and Raqqa? And there aren't many, any, many people putting their hands up. I mean, the Syrian army, the government of Assad, has withdrawn in the face of, Assad, of ISIS's advance. The Iraqi army has done likewise. The Americans and the Europeans aren't prepared to boot, put boots on the grounds. I'd be very surprised if Iran would actually be willing to take the fight further further towards ISIS. They have, you know, they want to protect the belt around Baghdad. They want to protect the Shia majority areas. So are we going to be left in the scenario where effectively ISIS is just left to fester in this in this middle zone in the middle? No one really cares about it. We have increasing state breakdown. And as you say, two years down the line, they're still there. They've effectively won because they've been able to control this territory and build out a functioning system for themselves. And I think that's one of the key concerns is Will anyone step up um, and what would that take? I think you've answered the question. It sounds like nobody's going to step up. Can, I think we should end with the, the kind of relic, because the scale of this is kind of enormous in terms of the future politics in the Middle East. The human cost has been uh, unbelievable. Um, uh, but depressingly, a lot <coughs> of the European debate has been about two kind of side issues in relative terms. One is the threat to us, to European security, foreign fighters, people coming up, blowing things up. And secondly, the, the tragic um, destruction of historical artifacts in uh, Nineveh, Nimrud, and there's a big question about whether Palmyra is going to go the same way or whether, as ISIS claimed in the video they've just released, they're not going to destroy anything because there aren't actual statues um, uh, with representations of, of, uh, which, which could get uh, destroyed. Do you want to? Have you got any words on those those two sets of issues? Like how how much of a threat, physical threat, is there to Europe, and might that be the thing which actually drives Europeans to um, uh, to, to, to to get more involved, or the US to get involved? Because the, the beheadings obviously had a, a galvanizing effect and did suck America back into Iraq. Not to the extent of putting boots on the ground, but certainly did lead to a, a, a big kind of shift in, in American policy. I, I mean, I think the risk to Europe is, is trivial compared to the, the as you say, the, the kind of the, the death and the pain and the suffering in Syria and Iraq. And I mean, it's a tragedy that it takes an attack in Europe to get our attention when, when so much has, has been going on for four years now. But the reality is that, that yes, it is a threat. There are there are more than four thousand Europeans fighting there, being radicalized. But it's also just it's an ideological point of radi reference for radicalization within 
within European societies, even for those who don't travel there. So clearly it is a threat. <coughs> clearly that threat will only increase the longer this goes on. And I think, you know, there is an urgent need to, to, to put it under control, particularly given what Ellie was talking about, about the fact that we're now seeing ISIS in Libya and Tunisia and Egypt. And we're talking about an explosive neighborhood right on Europe's borders. And that's going to have immediate security risks for us, not to mention of the huge uh, human suffering that, that that could bring to, to the rest of the region. So Europe needs to be focused on this. It needs to have, have a greater attention on this. On the question of the artifacts, I mean, it's a tragedy, but it's a lesser tragedy. Yeah. Um, and I think that, the, I mean, the, the, there is value in the fact that places like Palmyra, it's a, it, it, it's a unifying reference point for Syrians that could be used in the future to build something that is common and, and reunite in, in the midst of divisions. But I think the priority is, has to be on how do you find a political and security solution to the huge problems of these countries? How do you find a new security and political architecture, not just to the Levant, but to the wider region, that actually brings in some stabilisation? Any last thoughts from you, Ellie, on, on those um, I think just to reiterate the, the human cost uh, point that the refugee situation and the migration and the displacement of people in that region is going to keep on getting worse and that has already had repercussions in the recent days and uh, months for, for the Europeans on European shores and I think we're likely to see more and more of that the more offshoots of ISIS emerge throughout the Middle East and North Africa. I just come back from China where there's a really live debate going on amongst Chinese foreign mm. policy communities about what happens when Chinese citizens get beheaded and how mm. that will change uh, uh, China's role in the region and whether how they'll be able to respond because Chinese uh, nationalism is, is rampant so citizens are taken to sending calcium into uh, government departments to accuse their leaders of not having enough backbone in their um, discussions with against mm. Japan um, but if, if uh, Chinese citizens get beheaded there will be demand for some kind of action so it's I think interesting that, that there are also Chinese fighters joining yeah. ISIS well that was Central that's China well. has its own radical well that's their functions. biggest fear yeah. is the, the Chinese war on terror which has led them to do all sorts of things with the Pakistan I mean it's been more been focused on, on Xinjiang and Afghanistan and their relations with with Pakistan um, in the past but ISIS is definitely up there on, on their agenda so I'm sure uh, we'll see more of this and that is probably those sorts of actions which will lead to uh, to, to a change rather than the 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 kind of suffering within the region which kind of forces uh, external players to, to come in so thanks a lot for a great discussion we got one more thing to do before we end this podcast which is uh, our bookshelf segment. Um, Ellie, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, well, the book that I picked up actually uh, a couple of days ago uh, is by a friend of mine, Toby Mathewson, uh, called The Other Saudis. Um, and I, uh, it's been sitting on my bookshelf for about a month or so. He's just recently published it in relation to the Shia minorities, the history of the Shia minority uprisings in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I thought it was a opportune time given the bombings of the Shia mosques in Saudi over the over the weekend. So I'm I'm plodding through that at the moment. What about you, Judy? Well, a, an interesting book that relates to this conversation is um, the Fall of the Ottomans by by Eugene Rogan. And it basically tells the story of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which is so relevant given that, that what came out of the Ottoman Empire were these colonial states in the Middle East, um, often based on minority rule. And much of uh, what we're seeing in the Middle East today is, is, as some have called it, the kind of the great sorting out. 
the new configuration of power is minorities are, are, are put on the back foot in the face of majority saying we, 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 we want power. And this is where we talk about kind of the state reconfiguration and the breakdown of borders. So this book tells the story of, of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and, and what that meant, meant for the region, which I guess has, has quite a lot of, of pertinence for what's happening today as one thinks about the future. So I, I'm going to mention a book which I mentioned in an earlier podcast when we're talking about Iran, but it just seems too relevant not to mention in this context. It's a short essay by Patrick Coburn called The Rise of Islamic State, ISIS and the New Sunni Revolution. And in the course of uh, 100 or so pages, what he describes is how uh, ISIS was born, how the United States created all the conditions for its rise and has struggled to get this monster under control. And he talks about some of the experts that ISIS uses, uh, how fear and bleeding and beheadings are be, uh, kind of core bit of its uh, modus operandi. But also, uh, I think most powerfully, how, the extent to which the, the West is in denial in this whole area. And he, he has some very, very powerful attacks on Washington for fighting the wrong targets, going to war against Iraq and Afghanistan while building alliance with the real problem countries like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Um, he's very very critical about the Western response to the Arab Spring um, and also this sort of growing gulf between the bombastic language of Barack Obama in Western countries about degrading and, and destroying ISIS and the re reality on the ground. Um, it's a, less profound, I think, than, than the book which uh, you mentioned, uh, Julian, but uh, I think it's quite a neat little, quite journalistic uh, description, particularly of those hundred days where ISIS kind of burst into the international stage and, and started reshaping the politics of the Middle East. So that brings this podcast to an end. There are links to all of the books that we mentioned on our website, www.ecfr.eu, and also uh, to a fascinating collection of essays that uh, Julian, Ellie and uh, Daniel Levy edited earlier this year on the Islamic State through a regional lens, which is a collection of 15 essays looking at all of the different dimensions of the, the ISIS uh, crisis. So from Ellie Garanmeyer, Julian Barnes-Dacey and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel.